Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Today's podcast will be about women warriors. It's going to be the first of many because... Because there are so darn many of them. Yeah. And with that, let's let the introduction begin with our late night warrior, Dawn Alden. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, My name is Dawn or Sam Alden, and I am an... Uh, stage combatant, uh, stunt director, fight director, actress, producer. I w- am one of those multi-hyphenates. And um, 23 years ago, I started a theater company called Babes with Blades Theater Company. And uh, that led to, was a result of and led to um, quite a bit of research done on um, historical, legendary, and mythical women warriors. All the really cool kids are multi-hyphenates, so you're definitely, <laughs> definitely with the cool kids. Now, I have to ask, as I don't know if we've ever discussed this, you said Dawn or Sam. And I know this has come up. What yes, is indeed. that about? And what is we, that about? How well, is it Dawn or Sam? When we talk with a group of... Uh, non-cis male stage combat uh folks it will uh it will be um it will be especially relevant because i well i originally uh got the nickname samson from an old boyfriend um Uh because i I uh, won't i won't pry but go no no it's it's a cute story he uh he used to tease me he was also an actor and he used to tease me that someday I'd have to cut my hair for a part because I've always had long hair. And uh, I would I would reply to him that, no, I'd lose my strength. So he started calling me Samson as a nickname. And uh, when I got rid of the boyfriend, I kept the nickname because I really liked it. But um, it uh, I used it quite a bit when I originally started choreographing fights for the theater. Um, because I would be more likely to get called for a gig if uh, the people um, who were paying me thought I was a man. You Remington steeled them. I sure did. Wow. You actually did the Remington steel thing in real life. <laughs> I'm impressed. So, Indeed. Indeed. Oh, all right. So today we are going, or tonight, we are going to talk about we have always fought as the kind of rubric, as the kind of main theme for this first of our shows on Warrior Women. And that comes from an article that Dawn shared with me and that she's going to share with you about the narrative about women as warriors and and the notion of you know you'll hear it on different of the podcasts we've had it's a running theme that history of women warriors is just erased in so many cases and so dawn why don't you take it from there okay um so the the article that i'm going to read from here uh with full credit to the author the author is cameron hurley with a k 
K-A-M-E-R-O-N, last name Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y. The article was published originally in 2013, and it is a brilliant article, was later developed into um, a book. And uh, I, I strongly recommend that you look it up because um, I'm, it's a very long article and I'm only going to read the very beginning of it. Um, but it's, it's brilliant. It, it's brilliant. It really is a great and amazing article. Yeah. So it starts, um, again, uh, We Have Always Fought by Cameron Hurley. I'm going to tell you a story about llamas. They will be like every other story you've heard about llamas, how they are covered in fine scales, how they eat their young if not raised properly, and how at the end of their lives they hurl themselves lemming-like over cliffs to drown in the surging sea. They are at heart sea creatures, birthed from the sea, married to it like the fishing people who make their livelihood there. Every story you hear about llamas is the same. You see it in books, the poor doomed baby llama getting chomped up by its intemperate parent. On television, the massive tide of scaly llamas falling in a great majestic herd into the sea below. In the movies, badass llamas smoking cigars and painting their scales in jungle camouflage. Because you've seen this story so many times, because you already know the nature and history of llamas, it sometimes shocks you, of course, to see a llama outside of these media spaces. The llamas you see don't have scales. So you doubt what you see. And you joke with your friends about those scaly llamas, and they laugh and say, yeah, llamas sure are scaly. And you forget your actual experience. What you remember is the llama you saw who had mange, which sort of looked scaly after a while. And that one llama who was sort of aggressive toward a baby llama, like maybe it was going to eat it. So you forget the llamas that don't fit the narrative you saw in films, books, television, the ones you heard about in the stories. And you remember the ones that exhibited the behavior the stories talk about. Suddenly, all the llamas you remember fit the narrative you see and hear every day from those around you. You make jokes about it with your friends. You feel like you've won something. You're not crazy. You think just like everyone else. And then there came a day when you started writing about your own llamas. Unsurprisingly, you didn't choose to write about the soft downy, non-cannibalistic ones you actually met because you knew no one would find those realistic. You plucked out the llamas from the stories. You created cannibal llamas with a death wish, their scales matted in paint. It's easier to tell the same stories everyone else does. There's no particular shame in it. It's just that it's lazy which is just about the worst possible thing a writer can be. Oh, and it's not true. <sighs> so she goes on to talk about history, the history of women, and how she uh, wanted to do her master's thesis on women resistance fighters. And when she found uh, these women resistance fighters 
um, in South Africa as part of the ANC's militant wing, she was so stunned. She thought it was this incredibly exceptional and singular example of women taking up arms. And then she talked to her thesis advisor and he started to enlighten her about the incredibly rich history of women warriors. So I love this article. And again, you know, I strongly urge that you look up the article and read the whole thing. Um, but uh, I love this article because it so aptly describes how so many of us disbelieve that women ever did anything in in all of the history of the globe you know if women are not doing that thing on our television in our literature then they clearly could never have done it and that's just not true the people who control the narrative have created this legacy of women as having babies cooking and being killed and it's just not the case yes we did all those things but we did so much more the thing i love about it is the what i find is you know as i'm watching and particularly as we're all in lockdown as i'm watching a lot of shows is I see the very clear, just from a, as a writer, from a writing standpoint, I can see what the writers are doing or the directors from a directing standpoint because it directs. It's like I can see what particular framework of perception they're trying to, you know, basically give the viewer and mm -hmm. convince you of. And it's almost always with regard to gender that I see this. I find it just, it's like a constant narrative and how it ties in with the article is there was a, seen in once upon a time in hollywood that uh just came out recently and there there were two aspects of that film that people found problematic now there are some people who didn't find any of that film problematic and i that's probably because there were things groups that are offended that were not them but uh, aside from the fact that the female character is pretty much a cipher the sharon tate and has seemingly no agency in the film um mm -hmm. so she's just kind of there to be this diaphanous image there is also a scene with bruce lee where bruce lee does not really is not really made to look good or really made to look like a good fighter and i bring it up because in the very beginning of the film uh the writer i, I believe it's tarantino who wrote this uh wrote this wrote and directed his own work mm -hmm. points out how this aging tv star has been asked to play um, the aging TV star as Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character has been asked to play character uh, characters again and again recently where he gets beaten up. He's the heavy. And so mm -hmm. he says to him, you realize that when we show this, when you are seen routinely getting beaten up by guys on TV shows, you're conditioning viewers to look at you as a guy who gets his butt kicked to clean up the language a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. because we're showing that we're showing it over and over again. We're conditioning people. And it right. was interesting because part of the argument about the Bruce Lee scene was, oh, this isn't, doesn't mean anything. I'm not making a statement, but you set it up in your own film that you are making a statement. And as that applies to women and women warriors, that's one film like this, but pretty much every show that I'm watching 
you know, for a long time, things are getting a little bit better, but there's still even a weird subtext going on. But for a long time, the creation and the notion that when you show women being action heroes, you see all these guys on Twitter and other social media platforms flipping out because they're saying this is unrealistic. This, you know, come on, you're forcing women in these roles. This is not real. There's no, it's not real. It's not realistic. Exactly. And yeah. they've been conditioned. They think history mm-hmm. is what Hollywood has shown you history is for a hundred years. Right. 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 Yep. And it's just not true. And even movies that have are historical are set in historical settings where women warriors would have been present. The two that that just, you know, still stick in my craw is um, Braveheart, mm-hmm. where, of course, you have an entire army full of Celtic warriors, which would have been completely integrated between men and women. I, I could go and off yet, on that one, but go ahead. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Troy. Oh. Uh, the movie Troy, where oh my god, yes, they cut out the entire plot about Amazon fighters. Oh. I mean, there are there are there is you know an entire plot thread through uh, you know through um, uh, the uh, the Iliad about. Um, the Iliad, right? Is about, yeah, the Iliad is the yeah, part where they... The Trojan uh, War. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's an entire plot thread in the Iliad about Hippolyta <sighs> and the women, you know, the Amazons that are there at the Battle of Troy you're, fighting. You're deliberately trying to set me off, aren't you? You're deliberately... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, God forbid. And then, of course, you know, uh, Gladiator, where they showed the... Um, where they showed the, the, the Roman Colosseum and they showed all of these different ways uh, that fighting was done in the arena. And uh, I, I believe you see at a distance one woman warrior driving a chariot is the, is the sort of slight concession they give to um, what was very well documented as the presence of women gladiatrices. So so even when we are portraying historical events where women were historically present as warriors, we, we cut them out and we do not tell the story of women warriors by itself either. So... It's, so yes, of course, yeah. as as you know, Cameron Hurley's article so aptly puts, when we do hear about women warriors, we think it's unrealistic. There's 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 also something else insidious, and I'm going to take a sip of my peppermint tea to calm myself down. What tea are you having tonight, <laughs> Don? I just took a lovely sip of my tea, Earl Grey, hot. Perfect. Oh my God. Let's start with Troy because we just, I just had a, a really wonderful podcast with uh, Dr. Gary Stickle where he talked about the Amazons. It was the first of mm-hmm. many and, and Don, you and I and Vicki Noble will be talking about them as well. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a running narrative with all the stuff we're doing at 34 Circe of just talking about these particular, as the founding mothers of, of kind of like the icons of women warriors. So, Troy, one, in the Iliad, um, there 
Gary talks about, it was mentioned that the earliest references in Western, liter- Western literature to Amazons are in the Iliad. Um, Homer's writing in the 8th century BC of about events from four centuries earlier. So we're talking 3,000 years ago. So this is not new. Women warriors are not a new thing, not in the West, right. not anywhere. Um, right. And so there's a mention of, yeah, the, one of the big things in the Iliad is that the Amazons arrive to help the Trojans. They're on the side of the Trojans. And they're called, they specifically said, the equals of men, Homer writes, uh, mm-hmm. as warriors. And then there is a there is a discussion in a later, one of the later books in the Iliad of uh, Heracles and um, I think it's Bellophon, uh, who have to subdue the Amazons, one of their myths. So it's there. But here's something that's like not many people are even aware of, that there is something called the epic cycle or was something called mm-hmm. the epic cycle. So there's there's so many lost works from the ancient world. We have about 5 to 10% of everything that was written before the fall of Rome. Most right. of it's gone. And there was something called the epic cycle. And it's fascinating because I think you'll be fascinated by one of these particular works. But um, there were at least, uh, looks like, eight different stories, eight different poems about the Trojan War. All coming from different standpoints. So all just, it wasn't, of course, just the Iliad and the Odyssey. There was something mm-hmm. called the Little Iliad uh, and also the Ethiopus. And both oh, interesting. Those, yeah, both of those are interesting because I think the Ethiopus would be interesting to you because it is, it's a case of where, to, looking back at the past, you're not just seeing a gender issue that was erased, but also an ethnic, a racial issue that was erased. Yeah, because of course. The Ethiopus is, there were two great warriors that you don't hear talked about in when you talk about the Trojan War. And one is Penthesilea, Penthesilea sorry, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. who was an Amazon warrior queen, and she has an epic duel with Achilles. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing where Achilles, you know, takes, after he defeats her, takes her helmet off, her long hair flows down around her, he's in love, you know, the whole <laughs> thing. Fascinatingly, there is a story, uh, a story from the steppes, um around the black sea area uh which has the same thing a woman warrior versus a male warrior but in that one the woman wins so not surprising when the greeks seem to have flipped the script uh, sure, to course. tell the story so she she's one of the great warriors arrives and also a memnon who is an ethiopian king is the other great warrior that arrives to help the trojans so mm. it's a whole you know there's this whole other world of stories that people don't know about, but you've got the little Iliad and Ethiopus where they talk about the Amazons and their role in the Trojan War. Um, and to leave them out when they are, were so, I believe it, uh, it, Vicky may have said this or I may have read it in Adrian's work. Um, I talked to earlier about, uh, there's an article in National Geographic History Magazine this month, the cover story about the Amazons. And it's written by Adrian Mayer. I've met Adrian. She's a really wonderful per- person. And, a great scholar and has maybe the definitive work on the Amazons. And, you know, in that article, it, you know, it talks about the Amazons and the, the history, but I remember in her book or either from Vicki, the Amazons appear in more Greek artwork than any other theme. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's not like this secret thing, like we're talking about. It's like, Oh my God, this is so crazy. This is unrealistic. No, not really. You know, in the ancient world. And then when you get to the gladiators, you've got, which recently they even unearthed, I think, in England, they unearthed the grave of a gladiator, a female gladiator, gladiatrix, as you said. 
Uh, there you go. But it was Absolutely. a gladiator's burial. And they, you know, we've seen artwork from Rome of, of women fighting in the arena. You know, yes. something that was a big, you know, big deal. Now, Romans, you know, I think most would know, especially if they're listening to this podcast, were not exactly uh, welcoming of female authority. So they would have been <laughs> scandalized by it, if not titillated also. But they... Yes, probably yeah, a little bit of both. A little bit of which both. Which is, you know, why, what the arena was for. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Very similar to, you know, women in the WWE these days. It's completely, you know, it's not only um, an amazing display of uh, female athleticism and power, but it's also there as a bit of a titillation for the audience and a bit of scandalization yeah. for the audience, you know, because here are these women who are defying the, the nurturing stereotype. That still persists in American culture today. It's incredible that it's still there, but that's exactly yeah. would have been like. And, and interesting, a lot of in the Roman, the Thracian women were thought of as being a place of a lot of warriors, uh, both male and female. Um, but also Thrace was thought of as the possible homeland of the Amazons. Now, that's not far from the Black Sea region. In fact, it's right in the Black Sea region. Right, we right. go and dig up. It's present-day Bulgaria, essentially. And then also tying with that, when you bring up the Celts and Braveheart, I mean, that was one of the a theme for the Romans. They were continually fascinated by the Celtic women and the fact that they were just these furious, you know, explosive warrior women. And then the Romans write about it, that, you know, yeah. what does it say about the Gauls, who were, of course, Celts, the Gauls being located in France? That's why we get Gallic when we talk about the French, but the Gauls were a Celtic tribe. And it was mm-hmm. said that, to paraphrase, as, as dangerous as it is to tangle with a Celtic man, if his wife gets involved, she will come at you with kicks and punches that will be like catapults. And you yeah. have to, that's, you don't yeah. want that happening. Yeah. And there's that there wonderful story um, about how, you know, when uh, whenever the Romans would win a battle, they would parade the captured warriors from the other races through the streets and then into the uh, into the Colosseum to uh, show everyone in Rome the you know the how strong the Romans were to defeat them and uh, so they had a, a troop of Celtic warriors and they marched into the arena and there was the emperor and the empress and they lined up and bowed to the empress because they just assumed that she was the commander. I love that story. Yes. That is an incredible yep. story. Yep. There's so yep. many. We'll, we're going to break down each of those on later broadcasts. But you know what I'm interested to? You tell me a story about when you, I think you were in Scotland and you were looking for swords. And did you, it wasn't, am I, do I have this right? You encountered some tales of these warrior women that you hadn't heard before? Yes. Yeah. We were on the Isle of Skye and I went and, and uh, looked up and, a sword maker, a sword cutler that lived on the Isle of Skye who had his own little forge. And on now, just the curiously, wall... Do you go around buying weapons all the time, Dawn? Or is this just... Oh, if if I had the money to, you know I would. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, some women can never have enough shoes. I can never have enough swords. We're going to put so. that down as a quote now. For, for <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But um, but on the wall of his shop, he had uh, a poster, and um, and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna 
I'm going to murder the pronunciation of her name, but um, there was the word skathach on, on, and it was the, you know, this picture of a woman warrior. And I asked him who that was. And he said, oh, she's, you know, you don't know her? But she was, she was um, not only a warrior, um, a, a, you know, a, a, a well-esteemed woman warrior, but um, she had a martial arts academy. She taught um, elite young men and women how to fight. And she and her sister, apparently, uh, would often have um, uh, AIFE, A-I-F-E. She and her sister ran the school together. What so, era was this? Because I mean, I've heard, I've heard that story myth, you know, a little bit before. What, what era do they place it in? Uh, she was around the time of Queen Mary. Okay. Um, so this is the ancient one. So, yeah, this is like the first century B.C., around in there again that's again that part of the the celtic um history and or history and mythology so but it's funny how these stories you know you you might as well be telling stories about martians to people in terms of this stuff i mean do you find i mean just in your conversations is this does how often in in uh you know when i was in chicago and and uh was founding babes with blades in the late 90s um my friend um michelle told me a story of how you know we were we were doing some fighting and she had rolled uh wrong or hit herself on something so she had some bruises um, and she was at the hairdressers and, uh, you know, the woman saw the bruise, bruise on her arm and her shoulder and said, oh, my God, you know, what happened to you? And she, you know, said, oh, I was I was sword fighting. And the woman's jaw dropped and, you know, her face went blank. And she, apparently, according to Michelle, she, she, she sort of stuttered out, women don't fight. I thought you were going to say she, she called like an abuse, like she questioned. Yeah, right, yeah, her, no. Which, but. Nope. She just could not, could not conceive of the idea that, that Michelle was fighting with a sword. Just, it was just beyond her comprehension. It is so odd to hear. I mean, because when, in some real sense, this, this really dogmatic mindset really sets in uh after world war ii we i know you and i have talked about this and it becomes this extreme notion although it's really actually a short period of time you know for the listener i I say world war ii because there is definitely a shift in terms of how we look at gender roles and gender relations after world war ii There, there, there certainly were and i've always been you know these patriarchal notions of gender but there were always examples of women if you think of before world war ii you've got Women's Air Derby and Babe Dietrichson and all these different women doing uh, what would be traditionally male activities and being celebrated mm-hmm. for them. After that, that yeah. Well, we've talked about um, we've talked about the, how uh, martial arts and fencing became very popular um, pastimes for women in uh, the late nineteenth century. There was a huge craze that went around. 
um, the uh, Britain and the United States because a lot of things were coming out of the quote-unquote Orient at the time. And one of those things was martial arts, jujitsu specifically. And so a lot of the, the, the sort of um, women who, who had leisure time uh, would take martial arts classes to keep themselves from fainting so much, <laughs> to keep themselves fit, yeah. essentially. And there are all these amazing photographs of all-female fencing salons at the time. In the, um, <clears throat> in the more working class sections of society, one of the ways for a woman to make money, sort of the early ancestor of Annie Oakley, who would go around and do shooting competitions, there were uh, women who were trained in uh, sword fighting, in wrestling, in uh, other, uh, like riding and roping and all that sort of thing. And they would go around with circuses, sort of like, um, early circuses, and they would challenge all comers to a sword fight or to a wrestling match. One of these women is uh, she took the nom de, she took the um, the sort of alias of Jaguarina. Okay, and I think you mentioned her. She yeah. was yeah, and she was undefeated. She would uh, challenge men to wrestling matches. And, uh, and, you know, go from town to town. And uh, when they lost, they had to pay her. And this is how she made her living. Where was Andy Kaufman when you needed him? <laughs> <laughs> Andy Kaufman, for those who don't know, did the Intergender Wrestling Championship as a spoof. But Jaguar, see, but see this yeah. is something, I mean, I think this could be an episode just for us to look into. Just this 19th century craze and phase would be really interesting. Because yeah. I, know, yeah. I know about it through you. And I know very little about it generally, and it would be really good for more people. I think maybe in, you know, thinking uh, at future podcasts, what are the particular warrior women that people should know about that we could cover, mm-hmm. that we should really you know, expose them to? Oh, there are so yeah. many. Yeah, there are so many. I mean, if we, do, uh, if we do one on that period of history, we should really get uh, Tony Wolf to um, be one of our guests because he did a whole uh, graphic novel of the uh, jujitsu suffragettes, the, the the bodyguard. Just really cool. Okay. Yeah, they were called the bodyguard, and what they were were a group of women who were trained in jujitsu, and they would form a, a, a barrier around the suffrage speakers. Um, because, you know, the, the, particularly in Britain, the strategy was to arrest these women. They would go on hunger strike in jail. They would wait until the women were practically dead and then they'd release them. They'd go home, they'd, you know, eat and get well again and then start speaking. And then the Brit British police would arrest them and the cycle would start all over again. So the bodyguard was formed to keep the police at bay so that whatever the, whoever the suffrage speaker was could escape um, in the crowd and not get arrested. Um, so these women would go up against the police. They uh, were trained in jujitsu. They could fight with their bare hands, but they often also had um, small clubs that they would use to fight with. And um, and they were fierce. There are some pun- there are some uh, contemporary contu- cartoons at the time of um, 
you know, the police's clash with these bodyguard women. There's one called the littlest, um, oh goodness, the suffragette who knew jujitsu, I think it's called. And it's this little tiny woman and she's around her is this ring of police and they are all in various states of um, unconsciousness or uh, nursing wounds. There's one up in a tree. I am looking at hanging it right from now. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, he, he, it's he's wonderful. got a book called Suffragitsu, which is just perfect. Yeah. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. We've got it. And he also, he also okay. yes. Oh, I would love to have Tony right. on, and he, I'm sure he'd love to um, be a guest. But he also wrote a book on, or either a book or several articles. I believe it's a full book on Edith Garrett who um, with her husband ran a dojo where they taught both men and women um, not only jujitsu, but, um, but the, uh, the cane, uh, stick arts, how to fight with a stick, uh, with a walking stick or with, in a woman's case, a parasol. This is just amazing. Yeah, we're going to play around with this because this is like just too yeah. good. And yeah, I would love to talk yeah. to Tony. I, mm-hmm. I found the Edith Garrett. It's Edith Garrett, the suffragette who knew jujitsu by Tony Wolf. Yes. Um, there you go. There you go. But yeah. this just looks. So, um, you know, I mean, history is full of wonderful stories like this. Um, and. You know, I used to do uh, when I was when I was doing um, panels on women warriors. I used to open my panel by saying, uh, "Women have fought in every geographical location in every time period in history." It's yeah, and, absolutely true. And so, and I have the stories to back it up. So it's. You know, doing doing even an an hour talk on women warriors—you can't. It's yeah, yeah. It's barely scratching the surface. Barely scratching. The I surface. mean, because we've just talked um, about the West. I mean, there's the you know Amazons in Tahomey. There is uh, a warrior. You know, there are women who have fought in South America. The African tradition of women warriors is incredibly rich. Yeah, you. Yes, they're South American uh, women fighters. Uh, the trunks a lot in, of in the, oh my goodness, yes, the, the the Vietnamese and Korean and Chinese and Japanese women warriors are legion. Um, the naginata is a weapon that is specifically designed for the women of the households to defend themselves against samurai. Wow, interesting. Yeah, it's a woman's weapon. Bruce Lee's one of my, you know, all-time fave heroes and his art form that he studied was called Wing Chun. That was his martial mm-hmm. art. Wing Chun, the 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 history of its origin, the the myth or truth history is that Wing Chun was created by a woman. Wing Chun was a yes. woman's art and she was fighting on boats, she was fighting in close quarters and she needed a style that would work for her. So there's a perfect example that ties, you know, to this, you know, icon of the 20th century. Uh, but it goes yeah. back to this woman warrior who studied, started Wing Chun. So there's yeah. so much. Let's actually, let's stop. So let's much. stop at that point And we're going to obviously come back to this. We're going to come back and we're going to pick 
different of the topics. I am just totally mind boggled about the suffragette So um, we have to play with that one. But uh, let us uh, call that a very late evening with our tea and our late night salon after dark. This is 31st Street Salon. I want to thank Don Alden for joining us for the first of what will be many, many podcasts about women warriors. So thank you for listening. I have so many stories. I can't wait to share oh, them all. We'll do it. Thanks again and have a very good night. Thank you.